Hello, everyone. This is Volts for May 12th, 2023. A clean energy transition that avoids environmentally sensitive land. I am your host, David Roberts. A great deal of confused and misleading information is circulating about the land use requirements of the energy transition. Everyone agrees that building the amount of clean energy necessary to reach net zero carbon emissions by 2050 will require an enormous amount of land. But is there enough land? Will the transition require industrializing green fields and virgin forests and other environmentally or culturally sensitive lands? Can the energy transition be done big enough and fast enough while still remaining respectful of natural resources and other species? What mix of technologies will go most lightly on the environment? To provide a definitive answer to these questions, the Nature Conservancy launched its Power of Place project, first in California, then for the greater American West, and now, this week, for the entire nation. Using various metrics related to wildlife, ecosystems, cultural resources, and protected natural areas, the Power of Place project attempts to comprehensively map out sensitive land areas. It then tallies up the amount of clean energy required to reach net zero by 2050 and tries to match those needs to the available land to see if there is a pathway to net zero that protects environmentally sensitive land. The good news is that with some wise planning, the amount of environmentally sensitive land impacted by a business-as-usual clean energy transition can be substantially reduced at a relatively low cost. To discuss this and other findings of the project, I contacted Jessica Wilkinson, the Power of Place project manager, and Nels Johnson, the project's science and technology lead of the Nature Conservancy. We discussed the technology shifts that will enable a lighter footprint, the policies that could help encourage them, and the best ways to avoid community resistance. All right, then, Jessica Wilkinson and Nels Johnson, welcome to Volts. Thank you so much for coming. Thank you for having us. Yeah, thanks for having us, David. Jessica, let's start with you. The subject of land use and renewable energy. There's a lot of weird information and misinformation floating around about this, a lot of weird myths, a lot of sort of uh, people with strong opinions mm -hmm. who don't know what they're talking about. So what inspired this series of reports, the... Um, power of place reports what inspired you to start undertaking this this project yeah this is precisely one of the reasons that we were inspired to do this project you know under citing as usual like the way that we're proceeding now with the renewable energy build out we are seeing an increase in local opposition and we are seeing concerns about land use issues and land use and environmental issues are indeed kind of one of the obstacles that's popping up in the way of us being able to meet our clean energy goals and, and meet our clean energy goals rapidly. So we really started this work in California, which was the first time we kind of developed this power of place methodology. And that first report came out in 2019. 
we refined it and then released Power of Place West in 2022. And this is kind of the next iteration where we further refined it. And each time we've kind of added new kind of levels of detail and asked some slightly different questions. But the land use issue is exactly one of the reasons we've done this. So, so really what we're trying to do is question the premise of whether or not we really need to make these huge trade-offs between conservation and climate. I think the conventional wisdom is that if we you know, switch from fossil fuels to renewables, there are a lot of advantages, but one of the disadvantages is you need a bunch of land and you're going to end up consuming a bunch of cropland or environmentally sensitive land or land that the locals don't want you <laughs> on, all yeah. this kind of stuff. And so um, your take is that that stuff is exaggerated. So what is the, I mean, what is the, the power of place? What is it meant to convey? Yeah, it's not to say that it's exaggerated. It's real. Yeah, um, right. It's happening. The question is, how much of it is avoidable? Right. So what we are seeking to do is ask that question, you know, do we need to make all these huge trade-offs for nature and for people on the path to decarbonization? So we've asked in Power of Place, it's a modeling exercise, and you can ask the model, okay, go achieve net zero emissions by 2050 economy-wide, and model, please kind of exclude these environmental data layers, and let's mm. see if that changes whether we can get there, the, the pace at which we, we get to that goal, and what the cost differential is. Right, right. Before we jump into what you found, how would you describe the status quo of land use planning and energy? This is a relatively new land use, right? right? I mean, this is um, not something a lot of communities have seen before. They're seeing it for the first time. And they may be seeing it come at them really quickly. And so there's a response, just like local governments adopt local land use planning and zoning for industrial uses, for commercial uses, for residential uses. They are adopting ordinances to ensure that the renewable energy is going to places where that community would prefer to have it. So we are seeing a lot of local ordinances go up around the country. Uh, there have been projections from NREL that a uh, report they released recently said that there were 3,000 uh, local governments that have adopted ordinances. And I think it's important to keep in mind that just because this is happening, just because these ordinances are being adopted, doesn't necessarily mean that they're being adopted to block wind and solar in every case. Mm. Some of them are, again, just a natural reaction to land use planning and uh, a desire to direct it to places that the community feels is most appropriate. Certainly, and the, the NREL study from 2022 showed that some of them are overly restrictive and likely, you know, intended to be. Mm -hmm. But I think it's important not to assume that just because there is an ordinance, it was intended to block renewables. To what extent if this, is this response, and there is a very widespread backlash happening, to what extent is that a fair critique of the way renewable energy has been planned and cited thus far? And to what extent is it just sort of an inevitable reaction to social change? <laughs> right. We have looked at this, and we do think that uh, more or less about half of the renewable energy that is being deployed now is in areas that at least the Nature Conservancy, might consider to be highly sensitive Half. to wildlife and habitat. Yeah. That's a lot. Yeah. <laughs> I'll just add one sort of thought here about, you know, where are we today in terms of planning for this major infrastructure build-out that's coming our way. So 
First of all, just the scale of it is really huge. It's something like on the order of the interstate highway system that we built between the 50s and the 80s in terms of the land area, in terms of the investment, in terms of the pervasive uh, effects, uh, mostly for good. But, you know, if it's not done in the right places, you know, it can cause, you know, adverse impacts to natural areas, to local communities. So, one way of thinking of this is, you know, we plan a lot for transportation, for housing, for commercial and residential development. And up until now, we really haven't done spatially explicit energy planning. And that's one of the things we're hoping to accomplish with this series of power play studies is encouraging at all levels, uh, utilities, um, state energy offices, you know, the federal government, regional transmission organizations, all to get more explicit about where are the best places to put all this infrastructure and engaging the public at the community level, variety of levels to provide input into that planning. Well, it does seem like if you sort of measure the amount of backlash that has been produced by the amount of renewable energy so far, mm -hmm. and then you multiply that by the amount of renewable energy we're going to try to build over the next decade or two, if you apply that same multiplier to the backlash, that's a very, very big backlash, right? Like, it is. So I guess the part of the point here is that it's less, maybe less about poor planning than just no planning. There's just not a lot of coordinated planning around the renewable energy build out yet. Yeah, I think that's fair to say that right now there's very little planning that the public has an opportunity to engage in. And that needs to change to promote wider acceptance of this buildup. I mean, people have to have a voice in what that energy future looks like for them. And, you know, they need to be reassured that they're going to get benefits out of the development that's taking place and, and that the energy isn't just being produced in their backyard and sent hundreds of miles away to a different user. I want to come back to this question of, of public participation because I have a few troubled thoughts about it. <laughs> but first, um, so this report, this is a national report, and you created several different scenarios for different kinds of pathways to zero carbon by 2050, which have varying impacts on sensitive lands and sort of like, you know, you did these increments, like here's, we can avoid 10% of these damages, 20% of these damages, all the way up to 90%. So one question I had about the scenarios up front was, because I feel like this is another sort of mythology that's floating around is in any of these scenarios, did you run into an absolute shortage of good land? In other words, did you at any point encounter like there's just not enough suitable places to build enough renewable energy to do what we're talking about doing? Did that come up at all? Yeah, I mean, you'll see that kind of our big take home message that we really lead with is that, you know, we can get to net zero emissions by 2050, while avoiding impacts to most natural and working lands. Not all, but most. And, you know, we recognize that there still are going to be trade-offs. However, what this, this study did show is that we can reduce those trade-offs significantly with some better planning. So there won't be none. There won't be zero trade-offs. We think we can reduce those trade-offs significantly and that by doing that, by reducing environmental and social trade-offs, we really can accelerate the renewable energy build-out and avoid some of that conflict, which some of which is unnecessary. We've found that there is enough land for all of those scenarios to get built. What's important to recognize is that 
you know, wind is probably the most land intensive of these technologies. And so as you reduce impacts, you do start to constrain wind a little bit more. But even so, there's more than enough land for wind to be accommodated. So, for example, in the Power Place West report, we found that there was three times the amount of land available for low impact wind siding in the Western United States, even under the most protective approach to natural areas and agricultural lands, we would still have more than enough to accommodate wind. Right. So whatever land issues we run into, not having enough land is not going to be one of them. (laughs) Because I think people have in their heads some very inflated ideas about you know, because this stuff about how of land use has been floating around so long, I think people have very inflated ideas about the amount of land required and just thought we should clear that up, up front. There's enough land. Yeah. And, and with solar in particular, we have lots and lots of flexibility for where we put solar. What the report shows is here's like the energy mix for a 10% reduction in land impacts, 20%, 30%, 40%. And as you are moving up that scale and avoiding more and more of these impacts, what you see is that wind declines and solar grows. So insofar as you are taking land use impacts into account, you are shifting somewhat from wind to solar, at least relative to sort of baseline projections. I just want to know why that is, because that's it's a little bit counterintuitive to me because it's my impression is, and I think a lot of people's impression is that solar takes the most land is the is the most sort of like sprawling per kilowatt so why is it that when you restrict land use to more appropriate swaths of land why do you shift from wind to solar just maybe explain that a little bit more well so the the main reason david is that solar projects actually are much more efficient in the use of land compared to wind so for example a wind project that's 100 megawatts, Mm -hmm. needs about 9,200 acres to accommodate those turbines. Hmm. Those turbines have to be separated by a certain distance so they don't interfere with with each other. And so you would need a project area of about 9,200 acres. A solar project, the same size, 100 megawatts nameplate capacity, needs about 430 acres. Hmm. So it's significantly smaller. Now, within that wind project area, of course, not all the area is being impacted. In fact, only about 3% of it is. Right. You have the turbines and you have the road and you have a power line that's connecting it all to the main grid. And those areas in between are available for agriculture, right? So, you know, wind is really compatible with agriculture. But when it comes to species, when it comes to habitats, that's not always true. So when, for example, you clear a turbine pad, If it's in a forest, for example, you create what's called an edge effect, and that extends about 400 feet into the forest. And so that area is no longer good habitat for a variety of species, and it changes the kinds of plants that will grow there and other things. But even so, if you're only impacting 3% of that 9,200 acres, I mean, even if you have little islands of impact around the turbines, it still seems like a relatively small area that that you're impacting, no? Yeah, course, it depends on the species. So when you take prairie chickens, uh, lesser prairie chickens and greater prairie chickens, they're both very sensitive to tall structures in grassland environments because tall structures are associated with places that hawks and eagles can see. And so they 
have an aversion to being in areas near large, tall objects, including wind turbines. So huh. that area is larger than the separation distance from those turbines. I so see. that's kind of the indirect or displacement effect we see for certain species. So bottom line is wind is very compatible with agriculture. It's less compatible with some species, particularly birds and bats. Huh. Speaking of compatibility with agriculture, let's talk a little bit about... Um, Jessica, the, one of the things the report does is focus on a couple of strategies, I guess, to build out renewable energy in such a way as to impact lesser use. Mm-hmm. One of those is co-location. One of those is agrivoltaics. Can you maybe just tell us real quick what those two are and why the report sort of singled those out? Yeah. Um, so this uh, PowerPlace National uh, really, again, was an evolution from some previous work where we were trying to ask some novel questions. And this issue in particular, land-saving approaches, really is a novel approach to decarbonization scenario planning. And what we wanted to do is, in addition to considering how the mix of technologies changes the footprint, we wanted to consider how land-saving approaches, and there's a lot of different land-saving approaches out there. Mm-hmm. One could argue, you know, nuclear is a land-saving approach. But we wanted to consider how some land-saving approaches could, again, affect the overall footprint and therefore kind of maybe by reducing that footprint, reduce some conflict. And the three kinds of land-saving approaches that we're, we're able to really kind of dig into because the data were there were agrivoltaics, co-location of wind and solar, and then fixed tilt solar. So those are the three that we really kind of dove into deeply. And was that because you thought that those were the three most potent or, or just three common ones or why those three? There was robust data, data that was robust enough for us to consider this. And, it, it. and it, this is the first time folks have taken a, a stab at this. So, you know, it's a pretty novel approach. And for lo- the co-location of wind and solar, uh, there we were looking at wind and solar on the same project area. And when we looked at this approach, it was it was really promising for agrivoltaics. It's, a, again, an apportment and promising strategy for producing food and generating solar energy on the same land. Not all crops are compatible. Just so listeners know what we're talking about, agrivoltaics is just putting solar panels on agricultural land, on the same land where food is being grown. Exactly. And it's very popular conceptually. It's not like at the moment super scalable, but we wanted to ask, you know, how much more agrivoltaics could we do as a way to, again, get some of these co-benefits. And what we did find was that by using agrivoltaics, we could grow the amount of agrivoltaics we currently are projected to have from 216 square miles to about 600 square miles. So that's, you know, a significant increase. It's a significant increase, but is it a significant impact in the context of the overall land use picture? Like, is this a big player uh, in the final mix, do you think? It's not currently a big player, and we don't project it to be under the assumptions we used. Mm -hmm. Um, We do think it has the potential to grow with technological innovations and more incentives and more experience. So, for example, agrivoltaics that we looked at primarily are focused on fruit and vegetable crops. Mm-hmm. Um, there is some evidence that potatoes, wheat, cattle can benefit from agrivoltaics too, but there's just not enough data 
for us to be able to model the effects of agrivoltaics in those settings. But hopefully over the next few years, we'll start to see more experience, and that may expand the role that agrivoltaics can play in the future. Why agrivoltaics and not ag- agrowind, wind agro, whatever, <laughs> whatever the wind equivalent is? It seems like, I mean, intuitively, there's so much space between wind turbines, it seems almost more sensible to try to do agriculture amidst the wind. Is that not a thing? It is a thing. And in fact, a fair amount of the wind that's being deployed now is in agricultural landscapes. And that's what we show as well. You know, the area that we show being directly impacted in agriculture that's cropland, that's a subset of the most productive, at least from a human food point of view, areas, croplands, about 2% of them, uh, we project, could be directly impacted by 2050. But that indirect impact or the area of agriculture that's in uh, wind projects is going to be significantly larger than that. But that land benefits potentially from those wind turbines because the farmer or the rancher is getting an income stream, not just from the agriculture they're doing between the wind turbines, but also the revenue they get for leasing land for that energy production. You know, people understand the land-saving benefits of agrivoltaics are very sort of intuitively obvious. Similarly with co-location, like if you put the wind and solar in the same place, then you don't need two places. It seems straightforward enough. But what's the deal with this fixed tilt solar? Explain that a little bit, the the land-saving benefits. What's involved there? The main land-saving benefit from fixed versus tracking is that the fixed panels are able to be packed together in tighter rows than the tracking. The tracking needs more space between the rows of PV panels in order to do that tracking. So that makes those tracking panels have a higher capacity to convert sunlight into energy. But you can actually squeeze more energy capacity into the same amount of land using fixed PV. So at least in areas where there's not that much difference in the capacity advantage for tracking over fixed, fixed can be one of your land-saving approaches um, because it uses somewhat less land than the tracking. Oh, interesting. That is not at all what I would have predicted. (laughs) I would have predicted that tracking, because it has higher capacity, because it produces more power, you just need less of it and thus would cover less land. But that turns out to be wrong, huh? Well, except as you go further south, then the advantage for the tracking really starts to pay off, uh, including it exceeds you know, what you can gain by packing more fixed into the same amount of area because that tracking differential, once you're further south, you know, in the southwest, places like Nevada or places like Georgia and Florida, there you're always going to have tracking is going to be the technology of choice. Fixed probably doesn't make sense in those kinds of settings. Interesting. Okay, so the report takes a um, sort of a close look at these three land-saving, let's say, technologies, fixed versus tracking, agrivoltaics, and co-location. But those are mostly just novel inquiries to figure them out. The bulk of the land-saving that's done in these scenarios is by shifting the technology balance. Is that fair? Like, that's the primary instrument in, in what is or is not saving some land. So there are three steps that we kind of recommend. So one is use environmental and social data, no matter what technologies you're using. Then look at those technologies you have available 
and figure out which combination makes sense for your region, for your landscape, to achieve your climate goals as well as your conservation and local community goals. And that may involve substituting solar for wind and maybe adding storage to the solar so you can better make up for the gap that the wind might leave behind. And then the last is within those technologies that you have, say solar, what are your options for saving land, for example, agrivoltaics. One thing I want to say about land-saving approaches are two things that we didn't model as variables, but we assumed fairly high levels of implementation, and that is efficiency and distributed or rooftop solar. So Mm. we made some pretty aggressive assumptions about how much rooftop solar will be built by 2050, we assumed that about 35% of available rooftops would have solar 30 years from now, which is at the high end of projections that are out there. Mm -hmm. And so it's a decent chunk of the solar contribution, but it doesn't get us all the way to where we need to go. It gets us something like uh, about 10% of how far we need to go. But a big piece of land saving via solar is by moving the solar onto rooftops. It is an important piece, and we should certainly support efforts that make economic sense to get solar on rooftops because it means there's somewhat less that has to go out in the landscape somewhere else. But I would say if you look at the main kind of figure that shows how total land use impacts shift based on the the different impact reduction scenarios we looked at, and how the mix of technologies changes, um, I guess one way to look at it is we didn't challenge the model super hard on pushing the envelope on rooftop. You know, we asked the model to kind of push the envelope as much as possible in considering how shifting technologies makes a difference, um, how agrivoltaics and co-location and switching from tracking to fixed makes a difference. There's a lot of opportunity, I think, really to push the envelope more and, and challenge some of those assumptions about rooftop solar and policy policies that we can get in place really to kind of nudge us up as much as we possibly can because ultimately that and you know energy efficiency are some of the, the best land-saving approaches. Right, and energy efficiency, I guess, um, is obvious enough that don't have to spell it out too much, but just the less energy you use, the less you have to build. Yep. <laughs> so, so the less land you use. Yeah, I meant to ask about efficiency and rooftop solar because I, I, I noticed that they were not highlighted, but those are the main things I generally hear from people when they talk about how to save lands. Mm-hmm. Another question, Jessica, you mentioned earlier that you could view nuclear power as a land-saving technology. This is a something you hear very frequently <laughs> from nuclear fans, that it uses tons less land than wind and solar for the same amount of power. So I was a little surprised. I mean, I guess I would have expected that as you move toward reducing these impacts, you're going to get lots and lots more nuclear out of the the model, but that didn't happen. It was a big shift from wind to solar, but there wasn't really a huge shift in anything else. I guess sort of bioenergy kind of declines <laughs> sharply once you once you get up to avoiding a bunch of impacts, but the main technology shift was from wind to solar. So What explains that? Why not more nuclear if you're trying to save land? I think it really comes down to cost. 
<laughs> oh, the nuclear, <laughs> n- nuclear, <laughs> old Achilles heel. Yeah. And, you know, we, as part of this study, you know, the, the modeling, we worked very closely with Evolved Energy and Montero Mountain Energy and Grace Wu at UC Santa Barbara. Um, and Evolved has, you know, the kind of energy capacity modeling expertise. And so the, what we're telling the model to do here is try and avoid natural and working lands as much as you can model mm-hmm. and consider cost. And so as we're seeing cost play out in how the mix of technologies changes, and it would select nuclear if it were competitive from a cost point of view to um, more wind and more solar. So then a follow-up question about that then. You, you say, you know, rooftop solar can save X amount, but advances in technology or policy, we could and should push that higher in the name of saving land. Do you take that same basic approach with nuclear? Like, would you support reforms? Do you support reforms that make nuclear either, you know, technologically these smaller, allegedly cheaper (laughs) nuclear plants that are allegedly coming uh, sometime soon or just regulatory reform? Like, are you, do you support pushing the envelope on nuclear as well in the name of land preservation? So uh, the Nature Conservancy kind of has focused a lot on the process also being incredibly important, having the, you know, local communities have a very important role to play here. And this is one of those technologies that for sure that, that we need to be particularly sensitive about. But we do acknowledge that current nuclear production is really a necessary component of reducing emissions in the short term and even possibly in the long term, uh, provided there are improvements for people and wildlife in the cost uh, safety and environmental performance of nuclear technology and as well as waste storage and mining practices. Mm-hmm. Nels, one thing that jumps out at me as a uh, longtime fan of electrification is that the scenario that performs best in terms of land preservation, sensitive land preservation, is the high electrification scenario. Why is that? Because it gives you more flexibility in how you get to net zero. So you have a range of technologies, some of which are more spatially efficient than others. And so that gives you the option. So nuclear, for example, is one of those very efficient options. And so as we reduce impacts, push really hard to reduce impacts, the model starts to choose some additional nuclear because it is so efficient. So it does boost a, a little bit. A nuclear does get a little it does. bit. Of a... it, it about doubles the amount of nuclear that's hmm. online by 2050 when we really work hard to reduce impact. So it's not a lot, but it, it does increase somewhat. Keep in mind that the experience with the small modular nuclear plants isn't in the commercial space yet. So our data is very limited. And so the model just isn't able to really get enough good data to make it a cost-effective option based on what we know now. Now that may change in the future. And I'll just say that's true of all technologies. So there could be technology breakthroughs in lots of different places. For example, I was listening to the show with Jamie Beard on geothermal not too long ago. Mm-hmm. And that's one of those technologies where there really could be a breakthrough that really makes it a much more attractive way of getting to net zero. But currently, our data on geothermal is not exactly very promising in terms of 
cost effectiveness, but there's some really interesting innovations going on right, right now right. that really change that picture. And it is notably light on land, geothermal. It is. Worth, that is worth noting. Say there aren't other issues, but generally it's more spatially efficient. Um, you do have to look at, you know, aquifer effects and, and things like that. And there can be things that you know, are important to really avoid or mitigate with geothermal. But yeah, overall, I mean, breakthroughs in geothermal could lead us to much more land efficient approaches to getting to net zero in 30 years. Mm -hmm. Jessica, what are energy communities <laughs> and, and what and what role do they play in this the one of the results is that if you move to this more land sensitive approach these more land sensitive scenarios you end up with more jobs in energy communities mm -hmm. which seems like a good thing but um, a what's an energy community and b why do you end up with more jobs in them yeah, so we didn't necessarily say some, anything about jobs, but what, you know, when we were working on the modeling and, you know, building the assumptions, we had the passage of the Inflation Reduction Act. So big deal. Um, <laughs> and so we wanted to consider how that tax credit uh, that is included in the Inflation Reduction Act would affect. Um, so IRA gives a 10% tax credit for clean energy deployment in energy communities. And it has super wonky definition, as you would expect. Mm -hmm. It includes areas with historic fossil fuel production and processing. Right. So these are communities that were embedded in the fossil fuel economy yeah. and we're worried about them because we're moving away from fossil fuels. Right. And energy communities, the definition also included brownfields. Mm. But... Treasury is still working out kind of the technical definitions for a lot of this, right? Uh, which made it hard when we were building this model several months ago. <laughs> um, but so kind of the mapping that has been done around the fossil fuel production aspects of energy communities is a little bit uh, clearer. So we looked only at those and we were able to model areas, again, those areas associated with historic fossil fuel industries. As I mentioned, evolved models, the evolved energy energies, their models takes into account kind of price. And we weren't able to kind of build that 10% tax credit into the energy model just because the rules hadn't been set quite yet. Instead, and we might get to this, you know, we use this dynamic scoring approach uh, in this study. And we basically put a finger on the scale in favor of these communities. We gave them a negative social impact score to just see whether or not, you know, if we're incentivizing them, we see more of the renewable energy build out in these communities. So kind of an attempt to simulate an incentive. Exactly. And what we did find was that when we do that, we do see an additional 10% of the clean energy deployment being directed to these communities. So about 32% of the total 2050 energy portfolio in our scenario is built in these energy communities. And under one of the scenarios we looked at most closely, the 70% impact reduction scenario, 23 million people in those communities or live in those communities that host clean energy projects compared to 21 million people in the setting as usual scenario. So we do see a larger percentage of the portfolio happening in these communities and more people live in those communities when we, again, put our thumb on the scale for those energy communities. And are there land implications to that or is that just more about social impacts? 
Sure, there's land implications uh, as well. Yeah, so, you know, there's going to be benefits to those communities and there'll be impacts as well. One thing I'll just point out about the energy communities, one of the reasons why the modeling finds them very attractive for energy development is because it's likely they have the infrastructure and the energy capacity models out there looking for places that have certain characteristics. And these energy communities have the kinds of characteristics that energy models looking for. So that makes them relatively attractive for new energy development. It's obviously a different kind of energy development, but it can take advantage of some of the same infrastructure. There are likely already existing transmission lines. There's road access. There's a worker force nearby. So that's partly why we see such a large proportion of the build-out going to these communities. And the land is sort of already affected. Yep. From a conservation point of view, there's some benefit because these communities often have lands that have been previously developed for earlier forms of energy production. Right. One other technical question is, you know, your modeling finds as all modeling finds that building out renewable energy to hit the 2050 target is going to require an extraordinarily large amount of transmission infrastructure, new transmission infrastructure. But you find that an approach that is sensitive to these land and social impacts ends up using a lot more transmission, but a lot less more than than in the baseline scenario. So why is that? What is it about being sensitive toward land that gets you less need for transmission? The main story there, David, is that as we're reducing impacts to natural areas and to croplands, it's moving away from wind projects, for example, in the Great Plains that are quite distant from population centers where the energy demand is, to solar projects that are typically located closer to population centers and demand centers. So that is a big part of the explanation. So the shift from wind to solar sort of carries a a reduction in transmission. And then that reduces the transmission need, both in terms of interregional transmission movement, Mm. uh, because you don't have to move as much between, for example, the Great Plains and the Southeast, as one example, but also the Gentile lines. These are the lines that connect the wind project or the solar project onto the grid. And so both of those transmission requirements goes down. It's still a massive increase in what we have today. So we need at least two and a half times or three and a half times at the upper end to move energy between regions of the country to get to net zero. So that is a massive expansion from where we are today. The last two decades, we saw very little expansion Mm -hmm. in transmission, and that's really going to have to change as we convert most of the transportation fleet to electric vehicles, that is just going to really require us to expand transmission to keep up with all that new demand. All right. And given how difficult it is, that does seem to uh, serve as a recommendation for this sort of land-sensitive approach, since anything that can avoid the need for transmission is probably also going to avoid delays. Yeah, and and one thing we looked at more closely in the PowerPlace West report, we didn't have the time and, and the computing power to do it at the national level as much, but we looked at, well, what are the forms of transmission expansion that are available? And, and it's not just necessarily building a new line, 
through a new right-of-way, but it can be things like co-locating new wires on existing transmission towers. Mm. It can be reconductoring, that is, replacing Uh, the steel cable with carbon cables. It can be using what are called grid-enhancing technologies that are software, for example, or new conductors and things Mm. like that, which enable the system that you already have to move more energy more efficiently and in, for example, two-way energy flows in places where you only had one-way energy flow. So all those things together we found in the West could account for half of the transmission capacity that we need to grow in the next 30 years. So that's a really good news story that we can invest in these approaches right here and now and make a big difference in that capacity while trying to figure out where are those big new lines going to go because we inevitably are going to need new transmission lines. Right. But we can get a lot of, uh, you know, just to sum that up, we can get a lot of new capacity without new lines or new land. Yeah. So the, the idea here is to focus on those options as much as we can now to make as much progress as we can while the longer-term planning and investment for those new lines that inevitably are needed can take place. Right. Jessica, let's get to the the $6 billion question (laughs) on everyone's mind, which is when you ramp up these strategies for being more sensitive toward land, avoiding environmentally sensitive land, avoiding uh, adverse social impacts, how much is the additional cost over and above sort of the baseline status quo projections? Right. Uh, Well, at least the $1.87 trillion question. (laughs) Um, So uh, existing studies have shown that as reciting today, using citing as usual scenario, the cost of meeting net zero emissions by 2050 is $1.87 trillion. So a significant price tag. And that scenario where we use citing as usual will also impact 250,000 square miles of land. So that's an area larger than the state of Texas. So we looked at how under these kind of impact reduction scenarios from setting as usual, ramping it up to a 90% impact reduction scenario, how you know the cost changed. And what we found was that half of the impacts to land can be reduced. So under that 70% impact reduction scenario, half of those impacts can be reduced. So that's half of, wait, that's half of the amount of land is going to be impacted? Yes, under that 70% impact reduction. Half of the 250, what do you, yes. 250,000, so the 70% reduction case gets you down to 125? About right, yes. Thousand acres? We save an area the size of Arizona. (laughs) (laughs) Not too bad. And how much does it cost to save an Arizona-sized amount of land from development? Right. So that comes at a 6.3% cost increase over the current trajectory. Interesting. And, you know, that's not nothing, particularly for lower-income communities and families. However, we really think that is kind of likely to be pretty high because those costs may be offset by lower cancellation rates, shorter permitting times, and lower monitoring and mitigation costs. So under the sighting as usual scenario, we expect a lot more conflict and high, we see higher cancellation rates. Mm. Um, we see longer permitting times if there's a lot of both environmental and social kind of value in an area um, as that community defines it. And we think that although it comes at a 6.3% cost increase, it can, really can be kind of offset by some of those lower cancellation rates. To what extent does the model of the status quo 
incorporate those conflicts? I mean, you sort of can't, can you? Like it's, mm. they're very, it's very, you're just sort of guessing uh, how big those impacts are going to be, but they're going to be there, right? Yeah. I mean, does the model take them into account at all? It really can't. There's, there have been a few studies that we've relied upon that show kind of how much these, you know, citing insensitive areas from an environmental perspective does drive up the costs. And the studies that do exist demonstrate that when projects are cited in the more environmentally sensitive areas, they have a higher cancellation rate. They have longer permitting times. And as one would expect, more monitoring is required. And, you know, there may be other kinds of ways to minimize impacts that would be asked of the developer than if they were in an area that, for example, was a mine land or um, a landfill or other kind of degraded lands. So you think 6.3% is what the model shows as additional cost, but we think maybe the status quo modeling is underestimating cost because it's not being able to predict all these conflicts over mm -hmm. land use. So maybe the costs are closer to comparable than than at first blush, you think? Yeah, David, those soft costs are just not really available for monitoring. As Jessica said, you know, right. we have some specific places where we have pretty good evidence of what those costs are, but we just don't have nationwide data. The other thing that's important to notice is that we're also avoiding costs that are occurring when we convert natural habitats or croplands. Um, and there's a cost to that too, which isn't in the modeling. Oh, you mean the cost of like lost nature? <laughs> lost nature. You know, if we could put a dollar price tag on that, if we could, I mean. So those are, aren't in the model at all. They're priced they're at, z at zero. They're not. We're just modeling technology and land costs when it comes to these costs. Right. So if you wanted to say that untouched land or unmolested land has some value, <laughs> right, that you would destroy if you developed it, that would change the final sort of cost balance outlook. It could. We just wanted to take as narrow a view of costs as we had really good data for, just so that we could have an apples to apples kind of comparison here. Um, and that's why we limited ourselves to kind of data that's really well vetted and, and reliable. And that's the technology cost data and land costs. Right. But I think it's fair to say that how you are going to view that 6.3% additional cost varies quite a bit based on how much you value land, right? <laughs> how much you value yep. uh, untouched natural land. Absolutely. And by the way, in, in terms of those soft costs that we talked about, project cancellation rates, permitting delays, I mean, there's really an important business case to be made here. And we and others are working on that, but we just don't yet have the nationwide data. Right. The business case just being it's more sensible to go to more appropriate land if for no other reason than to avoid the hassle and blowback and lawsuits and et cetera. Yeah. The way I've, I've heard some energy developers call it, it's kind of the land analytics what is it about the place you're thinking about, the analytics about a bunch of data related to that piece of land that relates to project success? Um, you know, there are lots of analytics that right. wind or solar developers look at. Do we know that? Like, do, is that sophisticated yet? Like, do we have a good sense of the full characterization of land that ends up being economic to develop? We don't have good enough data. Um, companies probably have better data than we're aware of. Because, you know, it's a business and right. data can be 
proprietary, but we think there are a growing number of companies that actually are starting to pay attention to, as I say, this notion of land analytics. Interesting. And Jessica, um, one of the ongoing discussions, let's say areas of discourse in the clean energy world is about nimbyism and about community feedback and you know, the sort of gathering conventional wisdom, I think, is that there's too much, too many ways for communities to slow and halt things, too many ways for them to sue, too many laws and regulations that they can exploit, and thus that, like, nimbyism has all the power in the, and part of the solution is to move power out of local hands, up higher on the chain, up to the state or federal government. But you, in this report at the end, recommend more public process, more engagement with the public. So how do you square that? How do you, how does that not end up slowing things down? Right. I mean, we think there needs to be a balance. Um, you know, we, we need to make sure that the communities where this infrastructure is being developed uh, have a voice, not only that, but that um, they're meaningfully engaged. And we also see a backlash when, States try to go too far in taking away that local community role, and it can exacerbate, frankly, the backlash against uh, renewable energy. You know, this is this transition is not going to happen in the next five years. It's going to happen, we hope, as soon as possible, but it's going to take a few decades. Mm-hmm. Um, and we really need to have these renewable energy developers have a long-term uh, social license to operate. So we need right. to be finding ways not only to get that balance right, between state control and local control. But we also need to make sure that we get the balance right in terms of how we share the benefits of this transition. And I think there's growing recognition about that as well. I think there's some encouraging signs there. The Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act directed about $760 million in grants to state and local governments for economic development activities and communities affected by transmission, actually. And I think New York State is a place where they're really, they were trying to find the balance of that in their 2019 legislation, where they created this one-stop permit review process. That is great. And then they also acknowledge that in order to be eligible for that, you needed to demonstrate that you've consulted, hopefully more than just consulted, with the host community Mm. and that you have a community benefit agreement in place. Um, We need to make sure that the local communities that that may be seeing a lot of this development in their communities are sharing in the benefits as well. Yeah, I feel like that's an under, maybe underrepresented perspective in this debate, which is that maybe if you engage communities earlier and share more of the benefits with them, you can speed things up. And then maybe part of the slowness is... You know, your standard capitalist rapaciousness <laughs> trying to try to capture all the profit and not share any with the communities involved. Like maybe you could speed things up if you shared some of the money, basically. Absolutely. We really want to emphasize that when developers do the right thing, they show how they've avoided impacts. They show how they are working with communities to deliver benefits that the community wants. They should be rewarded. And we think one of the most effective ways to reward them is to get them at the head of the queue in terms of permit review, in terms of interconnection queues. Because if companies go beyond what some of their competitors are doing to do the right thing, they need to be rewarded for that. Interesting. Well, that segues perfectly to my final question. 
which is, you know, sort of what policy recommendations fall out of this. One that seems very obvious is instead of not planning, let's plan. <laughs> what, what are the others, uh, Jessica? What are the main sort of policy recommendations that fall out of this for you? Yeah, so we really were uh, thinking about our audience as being um, those that do energy planning, state, you know, governor's offices and energy offices. So we kind of thought about the recommendations in terms of those audiences and for energy planners at all levels, local, state, regional, national, kind of our solution is that they use the methodology outlined in PowerPlace to make sure that as they're planning for a clean energy future, they're doing so in a way that maximizes benefits to climate, to nature, and to people. Like, are they just not doing that at all now? Is, is, is land, is this sort of like this environmental sensitivity of land, is that mm -hmm. playing any role at all in the planning right now? Only a little bit. I mean, to the extent <laughs> that they do, and there have been some states that have, you know, they, they maybe are taking off the table, like in the way that you are telling the model, avoid this place mm. if you can, if you can't, you know, but take it into consideration. Right. Uh, you know, they will, they will, for example, include those lands that are currently off the table, like national parks and wildlife refuges and, you know, that really are off the table. But they tend to not include those other lands that maybe aren't regulated in that mm. same sense. They're not designated as high priority conservation areas. But we know they're really important either because they're wetlands or they are, you know, endangered species habitat or are lands that are going to be important under the changing climate to ensure that we have resilient and connected land in the future. So the first recommendation is just take this into account when planning. Take this into account. Use the high-resolution conservation, land use, and demographic data that we do have. And then for policymakers, you know, what we show in some of the, particularly in the regional snapshots we have in this report, is that, you know, different geographies are going to need different incentives. And we need to tailor those incentives to the particular geographies and the specific kind of Conditions are there, you know, is it highly agricultural? Is it amenable to agrivoltaics? We're going to need to adopt incentives to encourage the right mix of technologies and land saving approaches that make the most sense in those geographies. And then, as Nels alluded to, you know, for those projects that are well designed and have lower environmental, social, and economic risk, we do think that it's appropriate for them to be able to jump the line, not cut the line. Uh, but get to the front line for um, interconnection consideration and for environmental and environmental review and permitting. And it's really, really important to recognize that there are states where this is starting to happen. New York, California in particular, have explicit approaches to avoiding and minimizing environmental and social impacts. What are they using? Is it just like a financial incentive or is it a jump the queue kind of thing? Or what is it, do we know what works? I think we're still learning. You know, we're very much in a learning stage. There are states that incentivize, provide incentives to solar developers, for example, that build on landfills and mine and brownfields. There's a lot of great examples of that. Does it solve the problem? No, probably not, but it certainly helps. And then New York was that example where they do have this one-stop shopping for uh, renewable energy permitting if you are consulting with the community and demonstrate that if you have a community benefit agreement. So we are seeing a lot of really interesting innovation, and I think we're in uh, an exciting time right now to try and get this right. And now is the time we really need to get it right. Yeah, before we <laughs> head headlong into this uh, stampede of growth, which just makes, you know, as someone who has become over time uh, sensitive to these possibilities for blowback, 
just the whole prospect of this giant wave coming, just mm -hmm. the number of possible problems. It just makes me, it makes yeah, me clen yeah. clench I mean, I up. Think our, I think our findings are really encouraging. We, we can avoid a lot of these impacts, we believe, but we need to get the planning and the policy incentives right, and we need to do it now. Awesome. Okay, well, that's a perfect note to uh, wrap up on. Jessica Wilkinson and Nels Johnson, thanks so much for coming. This is a fascinating report. Thank you. Thanks so much for having us, David. Thank you for listening to the Volts podcast. It is ad-free, powered entirely by listeners like you. If you value conversations like this, please consider becoming a paid Volts subscriber at volts.wtf. Yes, that's volts.wtf, so that I can continue doing this work. Thank you so much, and I'll see you next time.